0: To paraphrase biomechanist Dr. Stuart McGill, many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you the chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout during your commute, workout, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60-plus minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH. FitLab PGH highlights people, locally owned businesses, and events in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody that you think we should interview, then drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, both at underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome to another podcast from Moving to Live. As you heard in the intro, we're a podcast about movement and fitness. Our audience is for two groups of people. We want movement and exercise professionals who want to learn a little bit more from people maybe they've heard about, or we're going to bring them to people they haven't heard about but have some great information to relay to you. Also, if you're an amateur movement aficionado, somebody who just likes to exercise, or maybe you're a parent and you have a child that you need to learn more or want to learn more about a specific activity or things to watch out for or to learn about or to look for for your child's coaches, we're going to be the source for that. And the advantage that we have is each person that we interview is going to be two podcasts, one intended for the professional, the other intended for not to downplay them, the amateur aficionado. So. When I first came up with the idea of moving to live, I wanted it to be a little bit different than some of the other exercise and movement podcasts out there because I know that in addition to there being a science of training and moving, there's also an art of it. And the individual that we're interviewing today probably has his start in the science and has combined the science with the art. Um, He is a specialist in coaching. He's going to probably give us the 30-second intake of, of what he is, but we are fortunate enough to have Dr. Brian Garrity from Denver University, who is the person in charge of the sport coaching program.
1: That, that's actually my official title, too, but It's person in charge. Perfect. Of the <laughs> So I'm the, the quick background. Yeah, I'm the director of uh, the Masters of Arts and Sport Coaching Program at the University of Denver. Um, Played Division three football at John Carroll, uh, exercise science and physical education degree. Uh, did athlete training as well as the fitness specialist track. You know, it's funny you said art and science because, too, I think that's how we approached it back at John Carroll, too, was uh, the physical education and the exercise part, science part, not just one or the other. Um, and, and, and we'll come back to that. Maybe we'll come back to that art piece here in a little bit, but. From there, I went to, I was a strength conditioning coach, uh, intern with the Cleveland Indians for two years from 99 to 01, then became a head baseball strength coach at the University of Tennessee, assistant with football, I did uh, tennis for a year, cheerleading for a year, was there from 01 to 09, completed my PhD in education with uh, cognate and cultural studies of education, uh, studying sports psychology, sports sociology. Uh, You know, psychology, sociology of education, philosophy of education, and then uh, became a professor for five years down at Southern Miss, and in my current role, going on year number three in our program here.
0: And that's something, it sounds like your uh, environment at John Carroll was similar to mine at Gettysburg, in that Mm -hmm. you were one major, but as a liberal arts college, (laughs) you kind of didn't It kind of was recognized that even though you were one major, you needed to have expertise in more than one area.
1: Yeah. We, we, we didn't have, you know, faculty with, and in, in facilities with just huge laboratories or space, you know? So sometimes we, we did the old step test that, that you don't see that often anymore. We didn't have jump, you know, vertical jump machines. You just, you know, chalked up your finger and jumped. And, um, you know, we, we also were about pedagogy. It was about uh, preparing uh, coaches or teachers to go work with, you know, usually K-12 settings. Um, John Carroll's got a weird history, too, of, of working in professional football as well as other sports. But we've got about, I don't know, 10 or so graduates working in professional football, which is kind of weird. Um, but I think that speaks to, and, and not all of them are phys ed majors, but it speaks to just the, the small school environment where you get a lot of attention Uh, By a few faculty, and you're not in these huge laboratory lecture classrooms. Just kind of getting taught uh, science by scientists. You're getting taught science and and practice by you know a combination of science practitioners or coaches.
0: And then the interesting thing for me, I did not realize this until you filled out our bio form prior to me contacting or prior to me interviewing you. But I did not realize you were an athletic trainer. And as somebody like me who went to a school and became an athletic trainer out of my undergraduate degree. My original career goal when I was in college is I was going to be a or an athletic trainer at a small college in Colorado. I'm actually in Western Pennsylvania now. you know what was your intention when you graduated from John Carroll where were your intention I'm going to be a strength coach I would imagine I know you teach in the online program at Denver University. The idea of an online program back when you went to school was probably it didn't exist you probably thought it was more likely you'd go to Mars.
1: No. Yeah. No, I definitely, I don't even think anybody even talked about it online back then. And then, uh, I thought I was going to be a bit, well, I was my first year, my freshman year, a business major and I took a year of accounting and I said, well, this is just miserable. And, you know, listened to my dad's advice and he said, do something that you're going to enjoy. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty privileged. So I switched. I always enjoyed lifting weights. I started lifting weights in eighth grade or so. Um, you know, I competed. I was a power a teenage powerlifting champion. We didn't have a coach. We didn't have anything. But I lifted four days a week, off on Wednesdays, two hours, and basically taught myself how to work out. Um, you know, got a subscription to Powerlifting USA Flex magazine, and then I was off and running. And so sophomore year, I switched my major. Uh, I got into athletic training in part because it was the only thing available. We we had this fitness specialist track. But there wasn't any faculty associated with it, and all you had to do was basically do your practicum or internship um, at, like, some type of, you know, workout facility, some type of gym, health club, performance center. And those were just getting started back then, and this is about 1999. And so I did the athletic training because a couple of my teachers were the uh, football or the other sports uh, athletic trainers that I got to know, and I just respected what they did. And so I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to be here, I'm going to learn as much as I can. And so I started doing back then, you know, we were an unaccredited unincredi- program. So I had to do the 1,500 hours.
0: Back in the yeah. day when there was an internship program for athletic training.
1: Yep. Uh, yeah, so that's changed a lot right over the last, you know, almost 20 years.
0: And was your intention when you graduated from John Carroll was, I'm going to be an athletic trainer at some point? Or was No.
1: No, I I knew then, too. I knew I didn't want to be, it's weird, right? I I knew I didn't want to be a phys ed teacher, although I was majoring in phys ed. I knew I didn't want to be an athletic trainer, although I was majoring in athletic training. Um, It was, I think, actually going into my junior year, that's right, uh, I learned that strength conditioning was a thing. And then you could get a job. I didn't want to be a personal trainer, although I was starting to do some of that. I got hooked up with the Cleveland Indians, and and that was it. Once I figured out you could be a strength coach with professional, collegiate, and now more positions at the high school level, that's what I wanted to do.
0: And Am I correct that it probably helped getting the job with the Cleveland Indians, the fact that you had the athletic training certification in addition to the strength coach experience?
1: Well, I was still still a student, so I, I worked for the Indians. This is the really cool thing. I worked for the Indians when I was
0: 19 years old. Oh, wow.
1: Yeah. So I got hooked up um and I could I could tell that story but it's a, it's a good one but I'll skip that for now But the uh, the head strength coach at the time Fernando Montes who I'm still in touch with and and we I actually thanked him in that coach education special issue we did in Strength Conditioning Journal um because Fernando helped open the door to myself and a lot of other coaches at, at one time the Cleveland Indians had the most extensive strength conditioning program and system, probably in all of professional baseball. And uh, Fernando started the Professional Baseball Strength Conditioning Coaches Society. So I was one of the guys, I was the intern, you know, mailing out stuff to the other coaches, uh, filling out forms, paperwork. Uh, So I got hooked up in a great environment uh, from 19 to 21. And because of that background and the athletic training, that's how, in part, I got the uh, gig at Tennessee. Um, and then at Tennessee, I got for more responsibilities because, you know, and there's a little bit of truth to this. Some strength coaches don't understand injury prevention and
0: mm-hmm. there are
1: common practices that they do that probably cause or contribute to some injury. And with my background with athletic training and the ability to communicate then with athletic trainers, we could uh, help prevent some of those injuries and deal with things at a, I think a, a higher level.
0: And what we haven't mentioned, and his part of his introduction, is Brian is a very active member of the National Strength and Conditioning Association. When was it that you became aware of the NSCA and joined the NSCA?
1: 1999. So I started with the Indians, the in, in Cleveland Indians, in May of 99. And uh, between Fernando, uh, there's an athlete trainer, strength coach named Scott Bartz. Uh, we also had guys in the field that are still active, Joe Hughes, Carlo Alvarez. I think it was Scott who told me about the NSCA, and so I joined within two weeks. My member—I I have the old membership number that has your date that you started on, and it was like May 22nd uh, of that year.
0: I believe mine is uh, November of '87.
1: <laughs> hey, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I started too. At John Carroll, I started a, a NSCA-affiliated strength conditioning club.
0: So so down to Tennessee after uh, graduating from John Carroll and having the fortune, uh, good fortune of being with the Cleveland Indians as an intern. And at Tennessee, did you start as a graduate assistant?
1: The, the first year, the first summer, I, I graduated in May of 2001. I was actually wor- working at Tennessee earlier in May. I flew back to graduation. That's how crazy it was. And then, so I worked right away with football and with baseball. But my GA position my first year was actually in physical education, again, in the activity program. And so uh, the head strength coach, uh, well, the associate head strength coach, Johnny Long at the time, uh, a GA position came up over the summertime, but a fellow named Emil Catnanny, who was the director of the PE program, reached out to me and said, would you be interested in teaching racquetball and weightlifting? And we'll put you on a full scholarship and pay you you know, back at that time, it was like a thousand bucks a month. I thought it was the greatest deal I ever heard of. And so uh, I taught, uh, you know, six courses, three, three, nine-week courses in phys ed. And I was also then head baseball strength coach and then assistant with football, helping out with football. So the the weight room guys paid me a little bit, but I couldn't accept their GA position because I had already accepted the other one. So they paid me part-time. And then the second year there is when I became a GA and in strictly uh, men's athletics and strength conditioning. And that was it.
0: So what Brian has is a really, what I think of is an interesting background because an athletic training major became an athletic trainer with, not saying this at all in a negative way, knew that he didn't want to be an athletic trainer, got involved with the NSCA, which he's still really involved. And what makes you unique and one of the reasons I wanted to interview you for moving to live is is your area of expertise, even though I think if somebody said, well, what's your true love? Would I be correct in saying it's some form of strength coaching? Would that? Would you say? Yeah. And, but what, yeah. makes you, what makes you unique is you've really adapted the art. And this is something I'm looking forward to learning from you in the next few minutes because your area of expertise – And research is sports psychology and uh, coaching. And we were chatting before we started the interview, and I said, You know, man, I really want to talk to you about some of these things because you can see just with the regular news that there are some problems in coaching. So, how did you transition or start to become interested in saying, Man, you know, I've got the athletic training certification, I'm a a strength coach, and I'm working with, you know, literally at the University of Tennessee, world class athletes. I want to start delving more into the I guess we could call it the art of it, the psychology and the sociology of it. Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. So it's interesting. So I'm glad we come back to the art part because there's been a couple sport uh, sports sociologists, sport coaching educators. Uh, one, uh, Robin Jones, who uh, talked about this issue that we talk about things as art. You know, if we don't understand what it is, we say it's an art. And we throw around the term like we know what we're talking about. Like, oh, well, that's just part of the art of coaching. And you're like, well, wait a minute now there's a whole social uh, and behavioral discipline. I mean, there's, that, that's a whole science. That's a whole psychology, sociology, anthropology, cultural studies, uh, education, you know, the, 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 the so-called soft sciences.
0: I was actually so, just going to ask you if that is, that's what we would yeah. consider a soft science.
1: Yeah. Right. So, yeah. And that's a, that's a problematic thing to call something hard and something soft. And, you know, hard must be good or better. And soft is like bad and squishy or something like that. So, you know, my, my transition, I really enjoy, I still enjoy, you know, you, you can't be in strength conditioning and, and be immune or uh, on an island and not understand to a degree biomechanics, physiology, nutrition, you know, and I love that stuff, and, and I enjoy it, and it, it informs what I do. But my first year at Tennessee, I took a sports psychology class uh, with a professor named uh, Dr. Craig Grisberg. And like a lot of folks, I think at the time and still today, they take their first sports psych class and they're like, wow, there are people and there's like a brain that is not just a, a physical or material thing, but it's things that we think and we feel and we do things based on you know, society and based on how we process information. And there's a lot of different theories involved in that kind of stuff. So coming out of athlete training or exercise science, we're, the body is basically a tissue that responds to stress and adapts um, or it becomes injured and you bring it back to, you know, so-called homeostasis or bring it back to normal. You know, when you get into this other social and behavioral science stuff, uh, it opened up a whole other world of inquiry. And so I took that class. I took a qualitative research class, uh, which really delves more into the philosophy of science and how to do research. And then, you know, along the way, in my grad school training, in the 2000s, in the mid-2000s, the field of coach education uh, in the last, you know, 10, 12 years now has really started to grow uh, within the U.S. and internationally with different organizing bodies, uh, you know, positions like mine right now with journals, with, uh, you know, I'd say the old sports psychologist and, uh, some sports sociologists moving their research into coaching and coaching education. And it's just getting more of a presence, which I think is a good thing. Um, and we'll, I'm sure we're going to talk about some of the, the problems and contradictions and, and paradoxes of today's age.
0: Did any uh, did any of the development of this or any of the information that you use come from the former Soviet countries? Because my understanding is they were a little more advanced in the way they approached athletics, both Positive ways and negative ways than the the Western countries
1: Essentially, yeah, so there obviously has been involved in the history of sports psychology to juggle my memory now um, There's been one of my one of my grad student uh, colleagues Tatiana Ryba her and actually Craig Richberg, the professor I was talking about wrote an, an article about uh, the influence uh, and the growth of sports psychology in Russia or the old USSR and uh uh, they wrote an article about that and talked about how it influenced the field here as well. Um, you know, I think scholarship within social and behavioral science nowadays has really grown from a U.S. perspective as well as uh, other countries that have pretty uh, you know, uh, rigorous and a federal, really a national system for preparation of coaches. I'm thinking England – Canada, Australia, or New Zealand—you um, know—some of the information coming out of, you know, Soviet or Russia, Russia and China uh, nowadays is, is, you know, right? all sorts of problems with uh, getting information in and out of some of those places. So, the more I think, open and developed countries are—at least two we hear the most of and are publishing the most research and the stuff that I'm reading the most nowadays
0: so you took these two classes at the university of tennessee and did that change entirely what you were looking at to get your degree in or did it more kind of just solidify what you were thinking
1: man my man, my, my route has been so roundabout. i knew i didn't want to do you know physiology laboratory research i i like reading that stuff i just I knew the guys that were doing it. It just never really interested me that much to really make it my thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I got, I got recruited. So my PhD is actually in educational leadership and policy studies. But when they were kind of recruited me for that program, at the time, sports psychology to me meant, you know, a guy in an office with an athlete talking about the athlete's thought process and why he's choking. Mm-hmm. and so you know I still didn't know really what a sports psychologist did um I didn't want to do that I was still coaching I figured maybe I'd become an athletic director someday and when I talked to the folks in education uh it, it worked out that they let me design a lot of my curriculum so I followed the advice of a variety of people and said and started taking classes from interesting professors they said you yeah, know yeah you should take this class with uh you know, lounge bearing, he'll teach you psychometrics. And you should take Thayer Bacon for philosophy of education and really expand your thinking. Oh, and take take polio for existential phenomenology in psychology.
0: It sounds and like so- <laughs> it sounds like unlike uh, many doctoral programs, you kind of had a self designed program where maybe you didn't know exactly what the end goal was, but it's like, okay, these are things that I want to learn about and at some point I'm gonna be able to make use of these.
1: Yep. Yep. Um, you know, and and you really too, you know what, last week I went back to Knoxville for the first time in seven years,
0: where I graduated
1: from. And I met with my old advisor and she said to me, Brian, you know, you became an intellectual. And I, and I stopped, she said, you know what, it's interesting that she phrased it like that. And I would agree with her one because, you know, right as an intellectual, it sounds sexy, Mm
0: -hmm. but
1: I think she was right. I think that you know the the change that occurred, and the way that I learned to, you know, read research, think about theory, make connections, uh, really happened throughout my graduate work. And you know, I took all of these classes in cultural studies of education. I took uh, 30 hours of statistics. I took you know about 18 hours of qualitative research, 15 hours in philosophy, sociology of education. There there were no sociology of coaching courses at the time, so. I was reading all this new stuff coming out and literally because it was the birth of this new paradigm, so to speak, uh, that's how I was writing all of my papers and classwork stuff. And then for my dissertation, I did a typical, I say typical kind of sports site dissertation about athletes' experiences with poor coaching. So I interviewed 16 athletes. They told me what they perceived. I interpreted it, uh, had some themes that described their experience. Um, And that kind of checked my box for you know, sports psych, and combine that with my cultural studies and sociology and philosophy and research methods. That's really who I've uh, become and, and stayed with the last, you know, eight years now as a as a professor.
0: And what makes it unusual and what you've become, I think, is first of all, you, you, like me, teach in an online program. But second of all, your program is sport coaching are there any other programs in the country besides denver university that offer a sport coaching degree there,
1: there are there are but it's like lord baltimore we don't speak their name
0: we don't well i'm not going to ask i'm not going to ask you to, <laughs> to give props but i would assume yeah. and, and please correct me if i'm wrong it's probably a relatively small number
1: it is there's there's probably um and there's a there's a, a couple organizations out there um One's called the, the, well. There's a, coming up here in May. There's a national coaching conference, and then there's a group called uh, that just separated from the old, you know, Schaefer or Shape America called in Casey. It's a coaching accreditation group. Um, there's another group called the Institute for Sport Coaching. So the, these are kind of some of the some of the nonprofit organizing bodies. But uh, I think I'm, I lost my train of thought. What the heck I'm saying? Oh, the other programs. Yeah, there's. There's probably about fifteen programs right now, and in in the last five years, you know I'd say six of those are brand new or have been significantly updated um, but I think one one concern I have too is as I'm just thinking about the field is that you know and you know you you see it that there's a lot of professors and faculty members that have never practiced. they went straight through grad school. Um, depending on the field that they're in, they might've done a little bit of clinical work for a year or two, and then they go straight into uh, academia. And I get concerned when we don't have people that are practice or practitioners and they're losing, uh, you know, so-called some of those soft skills as well as, you know, a pulse of what's going on in the field today. Um, And they, you know, we got to relate content to people, but we also have to uh, think about things deeply um, in in a, scholarly way applied to practice but not just so esoteric or you know laboratory science in this case is often doesn't have any external validity if I want to use the academic term you know it doesn't it doesn't jive so all this research that somebody's maybe spouting off to me doesn't make any impact on my practice and in, and in some ways it really is basic science
0: and the the important thing if if you're going to do science is at least in our fields and even though I'm an exercise physiologist we are I think our fields are very closely related and we're both very involved in the NSCA is the fact that if you're going to produce something it needs to be usable for people rather than disappearing in dust on a library uh, bookshelf or now into the internet someplace.
1: Yeah, hopefully, hopefully not. I mean. And that's the thing. I don't know. I mean, you know, I wish we had more to open debates like this. You know, one thing going around right now is is an article in one of the big journals. It might be the British Journal of Sport Medicine on athlete monitoring, you know, monitoring training loads. Mm-hmm. And because people are, and this is the social scientist, I mean, uh, really the sociologist. If I write papers, and I'm a physiologist, and we write papers on monitoring loads, well, that's very common. It's very taught in graduate school or and it's a new technology and so it becomes like this way of speaking about coaching and practicing and athlete performance and here it is and here's how it's desirable and here's how you should do it but at times you know the social aspects of it with conflict control uh, you know that viewing the body as something that can be uh, monitored and checked and assessed and that we're going to have this valid information, yeah, it's valid in the research world, but is it so unproblematic or might there be some unintended effects when we do this in practice uh, that that view of science doesn't translate over?
0: I so, think, I, I, think, re-
1: it's, I, think it's, I think it's cool, yeah.
0: I remember, uh, I'm go- I don't remember his first name, but he's from uh, the University of Otago, a statistics genius, uh, Dr. Hopkins gave a presentation at an ACSM. It's got to be 15 or so years ago where the basic synopsis was, you know, even though legitimate publishable science typically looks for a P value of 0.05 or less, Mm -hmm. if you're dealing with athletes and you're dealing with performance, sometimes things that are not statistically significant, make a huge difference in performance. And it sounds like from a different vein, you're saying the same thing 15 years later. Yeah. And Kimberly, as in, in, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so now you well, are you are in charge, and you are the founding father, so to speak, of the sport coaching program at Denver University. Was this an idea that you had, and you went to different universities, or did Denver University have this idea? Look around, and your skill sets met what they were looking for.
1: Uh, the latter. I wish I would have had that idea. That's a great idea. Um, but no, they had posted the position. And I applied for it and was fortunate uh, enough to get it back in what is it now, 2014. And so, I you know you'll love this one as an academic too. I was going into my sixth year, which is in a tenure track position, and I had a you know a modest uh, amount of publications and some research funding, and Mm -hmm. I, I feel confident that I would have been awarded tenure by my colleagues. And so I left. Uh, that position to come to Denver to start the program, and the program hadn't even been approved yet by our board of trustees. So I, I literally left to push the paperwork to found a program that didn't exist and was put on a you know an agreement that basically was like, you know, you got to start this thing and make it grow. Um, and if it does, good, you'll have a job, if it doesn't, well, you know, thanks for coming. <laughs>
0: I, I have to think that uh, the fact that it was located in Colorado made it a slightly easier decision to make.
1: <laughs> uh, Colorado was great, and what really did it, too, because we in, I interviewed over the phone and then video conference, and they offered me the position, and and I was really tempted to take it, but then I said, you know, I'd really feel, feel more comfortable if I could come visit the university, see my colleagues, see the facilities, and get to you know know the lay of the land a little bit. And I did that, and then immediately, too, I was sold. So it's Colorado, Denver, you know, is a, is a booming city. It's a great place to be, good quality of life. But then the University of Denver is an exceptional place, and I really do uh, work with exceptional colleagues. Uh, I'm housed in the graduate school of professional psychology. And so that alone is kind of interesting. And what I tell people is <clears throat> to work in a professional school with practitioners in this case, mostly psychologists, there's about five of us or six of us now that are not psychologists out of about 30 faculty members. But these are down to earth people that understand theory and practice. They get it, they, get it. they live in both worlds. Uh, we're not fighting over uh, grant dollars and, and laboratory space and grad students. We're fighting over figuring out how to help each other, how to really help our students. Uh, and have a great experience, you know, training and and preparing the next generation of practitioners from, you know, five different programs that we have.
0: It makes it much easier when people have enough confidence in their abilities to not think what's in it for me, but think what's in it for the bigger picture.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm not going to add anything because I think that's spot on.
0: So you... Took a leap of faith, which obviously, from seeing at all the conferences and from seeing your posts on various social media, has paid off. Uh, if you were to meet somebody in the airport and you were wearing your Denver University uh, polo shirt on your way to a conference, yeah. and somebody said, "Well, what exactly is, is sport coaching?" You know, somebody who's yeah. not in the field. What would be your brief down and dirty? Not well, do you have all day? But what would be a brief down and dirty. This is what sport coaching is.
1: We, you know, the the, the tagline is, you know, we prepare people to be quality coaches. Well, what does quality coaches do? Well, we want people to have a positive effect on the athletes, their communities, and we want our student coaches to achieve their personal and professional goals. So within all of this stuff, we want our students to be ethical leaders. And that means being thoughtful, being caring really in earnest looking out for other people, not just themselves, not the pro, not just the program that we're looking at, you know, in, in one case preventing injuries, but in another case uh, doing well in school, uh, helping athletes learn good social-emotional skills, uh, conflict resolution. Uh, obviously, too, we want them to enhance athletic performance. That's what coaches do. Um, I, I said something years ago to somebody – they said, well, what's the most taken for granted assumption in sport? And I said, well, athletes don't need coaches. And somebody was, you know, was a coach that asked the question. and It was a strength coach. And they were like, what are you talking about? That's blasphemy. Well, no, it's not. Athletes don't really need coaches. They can still be an athlete without the coach. But the coach has to have athletes in order to be a coach. Otherwise, you know, who, who are you interacting with? Nobody. So, you know, coaches – uh, are there to and usually do a good job of enhancing athletic performance. You know, coach is able to push you, teach you some skills, uh, help the team function, and therefore enhance you know the outcomes or the goals of the organization. So,
0: and hopefully, hopefully, I'm not going to irritate people in the coaching profession, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. But would you agree that the what you refer to as the soft science, the sociological, the psychological aspects of coaching, are probably missing in many coaches that are out there, and they could benefit maybe if they can't go to a master's program to some sort of a course or seminar or conference where these things are discussed, not just the physiological aspects.
1: Uh, absolutely. So one of the you know key things, right? And if you're you're into plenty of NSCA conferences and you know, we do a variety of talks on power claims and agility and speed and nutrition. And so it is in, in many ways, rightfully so dominated by the hard sciences, but you know, our big social issues of today, I would argue are really softer sciences or softer social issues, abuse, um, you know, lack of, uh, effective communication, um, you know, the overemphasis on winning and performance, not enough facility, you know, and some of the sociologists to me would say, well, you got to look at structural issues too. You can't just look at the individual as a problem. What causes the individual's problems? Well, you know, when you're putting tons of pressure on somebody or, you know, you're not training somebody and, and if they're winning, they're great. You don't do anything with them. But if they lose, all you do is fire them. That's a really goofy model of education, preparation and remediation. <laughs> You know, and, and, you know, you'll laugh. I've done this before, and I can't wait. You know, someday maybe I'll write the paper. But, you know, coaches, a lot of coaches 100-plus years ago used to be physicians, just like athlete training. When you think of athlete training and Galen and medicine, you know, in some respects, those were coaches. But in the last 100 years, at least in the U.S., the medical and the health side has gone in one direction, and the performance side has gone in another direction. And while medicine, physical therapy, athlete training – community health workers, uh, nurses are all regulated and, uh, you know, the bureaucracy and the formal structures of, you know, the U.S. have fully kicked in. Coaching has not. And and so what the heck has happened that we're totally missing the ball on preparing coaches?
0: One of the things with moving to live is we, we want to do is have two-part interviews part of it for the professional, which we've had. And and one final part with the professionally related interview that I wanted to have you discuss just briefly is the fact that you are in charge of the sport coaching program. Am I correct? This is a master's only program. Correct. And it's totally online. So students from literally all over the world could enroll in it. And is there a background of your typical student? You know, do you have statistics like the average age is this, you know, these are the most common undergraduate majors they come from. So that would be the first mm-hmm. part of the question. The second part would be uh, how many of them are actually involved in coaching versus, you know, this is something that's of interest to me and I'm going to do it?
1: Okay. So with our students right now, we have about 35 to 40 students in the program. The age range is anywhere from, I believe, about 22 up to about 55. Uh, so the average age is probably about thirty or so, but there's so much diversity in there in terms of the sports that they work with. So we have uh, we have a good you know ten or so strength coaches that work at the high school, collegiate, professional level, and and in the tactical field, you know, with military or police. We've got uh, high school lacrosse coaches, uh, college lacrosse coaches, both men and women. We've got high school football coach, aspiring college coach.
0: So the majority of people are either involved in the coaching field, or that's their ultimate yep. career goal.
1: Yep. So they're they're coaching, or and I, again, this, so this would be a good little point. You know, a lot of them talk about moving up a level, and so I say, great. You know, that's one of your personal goals that we want to help you achieve. But I don't want you to use the phrase "up a level" because I think it's a bizarre way of. Uh, how our words construct a reality. There's nothing wrong with or better about coaching at the collegiate or professional level. We and don't talk about that with teachers or professors, so I, I don't quite agree with it the way that we talk about it with coaches either.
0: And just as somebody who came from the Division three background originally as you did, I can think of four or five nationally known longtime Division three football coaches who probably have changed the face of the game and they spent 30, 40, 50 years at one institution.
1: Yeah. Actually the John Carroll, the basketball coach, Mike Moran just retired this past year and he was there, I, I think for something like 35 years, you know? So you just don't see that nowadays that much because of, again, presumably because of the pressure on winning and then revenue and the, you know, the, the short-term attention span, and we're not allowing coaches to really learn how to coach and become better at their practice.
0: So we've got a good idea of how Dr. Brian Garrity got into the field of sport coaching, starting as a undergraduate weightlifter. And I think football player progressing to the person who helped or was brought in to start the sport coaching program at Denver university When we come back in two weeks with part two, we're going to learn a little bit more about sport coaching and sociology and and psychology so that if you are a parent or somebody who is involved with coaches and you want to learn how to understand the coaches more or things that you should look for, we'll be able to pick Brian's brain and get an idea about that. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guests as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to us on Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play and be notified about a new episode release. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email. mov2liv at gmail.com Connect with us on social media. Instagram and Twitter both At underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about moving to live. We're a go to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.